for your legal rights. Welcome to Your Legal Rights, right here on 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. Here is your host, Dean Johnson. And welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm your host, Dean Johnson. I'm sitting in tonight for our good friend, Jeff Hayden. Tonight, the legal problem that we all face sooner or later It's not death, it's not taxes, it's traffic court. The inner workings of the court, and of course, everyone's favorite place to be, the Department of Motor Vehicles. As always, we want you to join the conversation. If you have any questions about the mysterious world of driver's licenses, point counts, DUIs, the DMV, traffic lights, stop signs, or speed limits, now's the time to get those questions answered. So give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside of the Bay Area, call on our dime at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And, of course, please bear in mind that our guests are here to educate and inform, but they cannot give you legal advice about specific cases without knowing more facts. And joining us tonight are two outstanding guests on the world of traffic and traffic law, traffic courts, and DMV. Michael Silvera is a member of the Silvera Law Firm of San Francisco. For over a decade, Silvera Law has represented more than 10,000 clients with legal issues including felony and misdemeanor DUIs, hit-and-run, reckless driving, suspended license violations, red light camera tickets, and all types of traffic violations. David Uthman was a police officer for 10 years. He is now a member of the law offices of David Uthman and the San Francisco Traffic Law Clinic. The law offices of David Uthman emphasize criminal and DMV defense. David is the principal attorney for the San Francisco Traffic Law Clinic, which was established in 1985 and currently represents clients in more than 5,000 traffic infractions annually in both San Francisco and in the rest of Northern California. This year, David was appointed to a three-year term on the California Judicial Council Traffic Advisory Committee, which makes recommendations to the Supreme Court of the State of California regarding uniform bail schedules as well as pending legislation. David, Mike, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Thank you, Dean. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Dean. It's good to be back. Okay, you know, my, my audience knows that When I host, I like to start off with a big question. And my big question for tonight to both of you is you are are two of the top representatives in the area of, of traffic law, which is kind of a niche in the law. What's the path that led you to become traffic lawyers and what are some of the burning issues that you face every day? Well, I guess I can start. I, uh, Actually, I was a police officer, as you had mentioned, and then I went to law school 
Um, after I graduated from law school, I did work as a public defender and then went into private criminal defense. Honestly, when I first started doing defense work, I, I did not imagine myself doing traffic defense. But later, I became acquainted with the San Francisco Traffic Law Clinic. Uh, previously, it was the principal attorney was uh, Gail Decreon. She was elected to the San Francisco Superior Court, and then um, I took over her practice. So that's how I ended up uh, being involved in working in traffic law. And the once I started doing that, I, I, I realized that actually traffic defense has become a very strong niche area in law, sort of a subset of criminal defense. And I, I found that there really is a, a strong need for representation. The, the law clinic works is sort of high volume, low fees. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why it is successful is because it's a, it's affordable and, and does, you know, it, it, we, we help a lot of people who otherwise don't want to deal with the hassle burden and stress of going to traffic court. And Mike, what brought you to traffic law? So I never kind of imagined that I would be practicing traffic law the way I was introduced to it was prior to becoming an attorney, I worked as a judicial assistant courtroom clerk for the San Mateo Superior Court. Um, I I did all criminal and traffic work. Uh, So that's how I kind of got introduced to it. I thought it was kind of interesting. I liked how it was the people's court. It's really just everyday citizens that are coming in to fight the government and prevent them from basically putting an unfair tax on them is the way I saw it. Um, So that's kind of how I got into it. I went to law school to be a criminal trial attorney, which I am as well. But traffic law is something that's uh, kind of been interesting to me. I love how it's very down to earth. And again, it's, it's, it's the people's court. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. I think that for a lot of us, um, traffic court may be the the first and only time we see the inside of an actual court, you know, and have an actual uh, issue uh, brought against us or or for us, if you will. Uh, And it's great. You guys have seen, uh, from what you tell me, you have seen both sides. You've seen the police officer side, the law enforcement side, the bench, the defense side. Um, the prosecution side, so we get all different perspectives. So what are some of the hot issues that are facing traffic court right now? Well, I think that right now it's actually a very interesting time in traffic court in the Bay Area and in San Francisco in particular. Actually, in San Francisco right now, the volume of traffic tickets that's being issued and, and, and being prosecuted in the in the superior court has dramatically declined. I believe that it's probably at about 30 percent, 25 to 30 percent of what it was prior to COVID-19. So Prior to COVID-19, streets of San Francisco have always been very dangerous. There was roughly two traffic fatalities a month in San Francisco. That led to very heavy enforcement by San Francisco Police Department, and it was effective. The statistics showed that, that the fatalities decreased. However, once COVID hit, 
they, they dialed back the enforcement. And what happened was that there were less cars on the streets, but the fatalities actually went back up to, to a high level, roughly two a month. Right now, the average calendar, the average number of cases in traffic court is about probably about 10, probably about 10 to at most 15 cases on a trial calendar. Um, it, before COVID, when it was very heavy enforcement, there could be as many as 35, 40 cases. So right now, I think the, the streets of San Francisco are, are, are a little bit um, of a almost what I'd call an honor system. It's harder to get a ticket in San Francisco now than, than, than it's ever been been before. Good to know. I mean, is that because there was a cutback in law enforcement or because people were just being more careful or traveling less, or is it a combination of all of those? It's a very interesting, uh, so there's multiple reasons. Initially, COVID hit and they just wanted to dial back enforcement. They just wanted to be kinder more gentle you know a lot of people were losing work that they and plus there were not a lot of cars on the streets they dialed back enforcement but the other thing that happened was that citizen complaints have been a big issue and in a lot of metropolitan cities like san francisco of bigger cities the, the they've been dealing with such a high level of citizen complaints and the police administration believes that a lot of these complaints are, are, are happening in response to traffic enforcement. So they have literally instructed their officers to do less enforcement in order to, in order to reduce the number of citizen complaints. I, I have had officers tell me that, and I've seen it by way of policy as well. So, And if I could follow up on that. Yeah, Mike, another- please. There's, a, there's another thing, actually, that a lot of people aren't aware of, is that the SFPD has been given an internal protocol. Whenever they write a ticket, they have to put the apparent gender, the apparent identity, the color, all kinds of information needs to be attached to that ticket, which makes takes about probably 10 to 15 additional minutes for an officer to complete. So just internally, as far as what's going on in the streets, officers are not really wanting to write tickets because of that. So is is gender and and color those those are problems for the police? Is it hard figuring those out? Or um... well, it's it's just takes extra work, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the protocol was was put in place to kind of decrease pretext stops of uh, of minor of minorities because there was a very high rate of uh, black and brown citizens being pulled over in San Francisco. So a lot of officers just don't even want to get involved with uh, that whole scenario and they can get in trouble if they're seen to be, uh, if they're judged as profiling. Wow. Uh, Well, yeah, obviously if somebody is racially profiling, that is a serious problem. You know, I, I just, just to change the subject for a minute, um, I rem- you know, I do s- some TV and I had one of my anchors who uh, did the late show and was driving home late and got um, a ticket from a red light camera. And that was a long time ago. And I, I just wonder what has happened to the red light cameras? I know that some cities thought that they were going to be a, rate, a great revenue stream and then they found out it wasn't so great. And so they dismantled the whole system. Are those guys still around and are they still working? So some cities have ceased their red light camera programs. Quite a few in San Mateo have. 
Um, it was getting to the point where I think the profitability was declining. And also, you know, about 95 to 98% of these tickets are all citizens making rolling right turns. Uh, just completely bogus. So someone's making a rolling right turn and gets a $500 uh, bill in the mail. So there's a lot of public outcry about that. So I think that a lot of city councils in response to public outcry and dwindling profits have elected to discontinue the red light camera programs. Yeah, so it was meant as a, as a for-profit operation, but it just didn't work out that way. Huh? Absolutely. I, on, on that red light camera issue, I can tell you, though, that the red light camera system in San Francisco is alive and well and active. Probably about 30, 40 percent of all the citations issued right now in San Francisco are coming from red light camera enforcement. Yeah. And aren't those cases kind of, uh, well, I'd say problematic, but for somebody who defends traffic cases, they are probably... Uh, gold because my experience with the red light cameras is that there's just a lot of issues that that arise with those things am i correct about that yes there are it is more complicated because it's not an on view citation you know typically an officer observes a violation stops the motorist and issues a ticket the officer is the witness but with the red light camera, the officer is not actually witnessing the violation. They literally have to build a case. It's similar to how they would build almost a, like a, a felony case. I mean, it's they're, they're, they they you know the camera has to take the photo, then they have to. Uh, take a look at the at the photograph of the license of the vehicle of the driver. Then they need to run the registration. They basically have to build a case. Then they'll they'll run the um, driver's license of the of the registered owner, and they'll look at the photo. They'll try to see if the photo of the register of, of the driver's license of the registered owner of the car looks like the person driving the car. Then they you know they issue the citation. Um, there's there and there's also uh, you know other issues as well, other evidentiary issues that require that the uh, red light camera companies that that maintain the machines also have to come to court to help establish the 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 you know the viability of of the tickets. So there there are a lot of moving parts. But I can also say that it is most of these issues are have been pretty well established to the point where it's not as easy to defend them as it was when the program was in its infancy, when it was in its earlier stages. Yeah, I remember in the case with one of my anchor men, uh, the ticket said time illegally in intersection zero, <laughs> um, which seemed to me like a pretty good defense. And so my my anchor man went to court all ready to make his pitch to the judge and the officer didn't even show up. So case dismissed. Yeah. You are listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM. I'm sitting in for your buddy Jeff Hayden tonight. I'm Dean Johnson. And tonight we're discussing traffic court and the Department of Motor Vehicles. If you have any questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside the Bay Area, call us at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. 
As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topics, whether it's your driver's license, the police, the courts, or the DMV. You're not limited to the exact point that we may be discussing in the conversation. So call in and join this conversation. Um, You know, let's go through the process uh, right from the beginning. So I'm driving along. I look in my rearview mirror. I see the flashing red and blue lights, and I pull over. Uh, David, you know, you were an officer for 10 years. What's going through the officer's mind as he pulls somebody over like this? Well, I'd say for starters, you can almost look at two categories of traffic stops, uh, daytime and nighttime. Mm -hmm. Most typically a daytime traffic stop is more than likely going to be for a, a a traffic violation that the officer is going to want to issue a ticket for, a, you know, a, a red light, a stop sign, speeding. Typically, if you're stopped during the daytime, it is likely for an enforcement action versus night. Night stops, I think, are typically more what we would call a pretext stop, meaning that the officer has a legal reason to stop the motorist. Maybe they're um, speeding a little bit. Uh, maybe they're, they're, they're weaving. Uh, perhaps they've run a stop sign. They have a, they have a legal reason to pull them over, but they are more than likely stopping the motorist more so to, for other reasons, typically to check sobriety. So mm-hmm. uh, an officer can pull somebody over for a technical reason, but have a different motivation. So I think it starts right there, day versus night. All right, we have on line one Juan from Santa Clara, who says has some questions about traffic tickets and police budgets. Juan, how you doing? Good, good. Uh, just a good question. You know, going back to the red traffic lights, uh, you know, the traffic light cameras. Why are, are they being used as a budget increase for the police department? Wouldn't that be just Increasing the tax on the on the people. Absolutely. Um, so the revenue, I don't believe, goes to the the police department directly. Maybe a portion of it, but it generally goes to but a state the fund. City, right? um, but yes, I mean these red light camera tickets, in my opinion, are, are completely, basically, an unfair tax on the citizenry. Does that answer your question, Juan? Yeah. And so, what can be done about that? <laughs> well, I guess uh, if we, you wanted to launch uh, some kind of political campaign or something of that nature, uh, you know, it would have to go through the legislature and the legislature makes the ultimate decision. But uh, as far as, you know, for us on the street, there's not a heck of a lot we can do. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Hey, Juan, thanks yeah. for calling in. On line two, we have Bill from Daly City with questions about traffic intersections. Bill, you there? I am. You are on KALW. What's your question? Uh, almost every day, I am in the uh, Hunters Point area of San Francisco, and uh, traffic there is absolute chaos ever since the uh, COVID uh, lockdown started. There is no observance of stop signs, uh, and and I'll be stopped at a stop sign. Someone will uh, come up behind me and just keep going around me right through it, and uh, I'm wondering if there's a way to alert the police to this and would it be worth my time or would it be a waste of time 
the specific I have specific intersections in mind and streets that I could point them to. I mean, it seems to me it would be a huge revenue maker for the city. Yes, you should absolutely follow up on that. Basically, if that's in the San Francisco, you can send an email or contact the precinct captain and lodge a complaint. They will act on it. I have talked to officers in the courtroom who have literally said that that they, they they've dialed back enforcement so much, and they they the the only way that they're going to increase it is by people complaining and, and reporting just just as you've said. And you're right. The streets of San Francisco right now it's it's a it's the wild west. Take it's a it, I, I like to call it on the honor system, but but the people understand that enforcement has dramatically waned, and they're they're you know they're not respecting the laws. And the thing is, is that it gets dangerous, as you just described. It, it literally gets dangerous. And um, but but yes, you you should report it to SFPD, report it to the precinct captain. They they will take action. I agree with Thank Dave. They, so probably will, they probably will put a patrolman out there at least for you know a certain amount of time. So definitely call in. Hey, Bill. Thanks for calling. Okay, thank you. Okay, as always happens with this subject, this is, as you said, the people's court, and the the lines are lighting up on line one. We have Paul from San Francisco, wants to ask questions about liability in rental cars. Paul, are you there? Hi there. Here I am. Hey, you're Um, on KALW, Paul. Thank you. Hey, my question is, I'm I'm renting a car uh, coming up this holidays, driving to Texas, from SF, and I've heard some horror stories uh, maybe about Texas like or what? Or of um, I'm concerned about any liability of any type of contraband that might have been left in the car. Uh, most specifically, uh, marijuana or marijuana residue, uh, being that I'm renting from Calif- or you know from California, and I'm driving. I'm actually driving to Texas, and I'm more than a bit concerned about what my what would what could or would happen should uh should the should i be stopped and uh i would not consent to a search but that's always such a gray area and what would my what would my position be in in a case like that if if some type of uh contraband that might have been legal here in california would be found in you know say new mexico well paul you got to add another fact as far as your position where are you in texas or in california or somewhere in between Oh no! I, I I live in San Francisco. I'm I, driving. I'm I'm renting a car to uh, drive from here to Texas in the in the holiday. Yeah, but I'm asking what, when you're driving the car and you get stopped, where are you? Oh, I, I, anywhere in between, potentially okay. Arizona, um, uh, which is a kind of a rough place, through New Mexico into the Panhandle of Texas. Yeah. So Colorado. Uh, so, so the, the the point is, like, if, if something that is legal here in California is found there in 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 New Mexico, and it's not mine, and it's a it's a rental car, I don't know if somebody has, has left the, the items in the car from a prior rental. What would my where, where would I land in that, David? Mike. So that, so that's a that's a good question, Paul. And right. and the answer, unfortunately, you're probably not going to like is that you can certainly be charged with possession. Um, your defense would be that it wasn't mine. Um, if we're talking about a large amount in plastic baggies or something of that nature, I mean, you could always elect to have a lab test it for fingerprints to aid your defense. 
but uh, prosecutors can charge anybody for anything at any time. Um, you know, no matter whether that car is registered to you or not. And yeah, then, I, I'd, I'd I say that, that I'd say that um, you know due process of law. So you you're you're in California, you're under the jurisdiction, the laws of California, but then you cross a state line. So really. Uh, it's incumbent on you once you cross the state line to know the, you know, the, the laws of that state, particularly with, as it pertains to issues like that. And as Mike said, you know, prosecutors can do their, do their thing and, and prosecute you. And then you're, you're, you're in a tough situation because of course you do have constitutional rights. You do have the right to due process of law, but that, oftentimes takes time, money, stress, and uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's kind of a losing overall, a losing proposition for you. So I'd say inspect your car carefully, be careful and understand what's, you know, you're, you're your own first line of defense. I'd inspect that car carefully before I go across a state line to start. And, you know, and, and, and that's what, that's what my, uh, that's what my mother's told me. And let me, let me ask you. You listen other- to your mama. Smart lady. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, she, she's she, smart. Yeah, right. One other thing. What is my what's my obligation uh for uh search uh for for the police department or uh to be to, to refuse a search based on based uh, on what? Always say no. You have a, a, a right against search, uh, unreasonable search and seizure via the fourth mm-hmm. amendment. Always say no. Uh, police may have probable cause or another exception to get around the requirement for a warrant, but always say no. Uh, Officers can be a little tricky and you, you, Mike's absolutely correct. You should never consent, but a lot of times they will sort of try to, they'll, they'll, they'll say things like, you don't mind if I look here, Um, you know, they'll, they'll try to make it sound a little more innocuous but okay, absolutely right. You, you need to you, you need to be firm but polite. And also, if you can, you can turn on your phone. The moment those red lights come on, you can turn on your phone and, and, and leave it in your car. And and the and, you know the, the contact can be recorded. You can try to create evidence. Now, if they see you doing it, they may try to intervene. But you have a perfect right to turn on your phone and try to record the you know re- record the 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 contact, the transaction, the the, the yes. wording, and 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 to say in clear clear terms, no, I do not consent to a search of this that's vehicle. right politely hey. and correctly okay hey paul oh. great questions enjoy you. your trip we're going to take a little station break here this is kalw 91.7 thank you very much my apologies for the quick delay it was uh putting a, a caller off the air there for a quick second um Thank you so much for listening to Your Legal Rights right here in 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. KALW presents music and culture happening around the Bay. Synth-pop duo Magdalena Bay comes to the Regency Ballroom in San Francisco. That's coming up on Friday, October 28th for an all-ages show. Special guest Baylai opens. For information, visit theregencyballroom.com. And check out KALW's great music, prog- music programs anytime at klw.org music. 
Also, support for KALW is also provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Again, that is 415-989-1616 or sfbar.org for more information. Once again, this is KALW 91.7 on the dial and available 24-7-365 on KALW.org. The show is Your Legal Rights, and here's your host, Dean Johnson. Hey, uh, so we're back, you know, and I'd like to go back to what we were talking about before, David. You know, you talked about daytime stops and nighttime stops. I imagine whatever the situation, but especially the nighttime stop, um, as a police officer, if you're the person affecting that stop, there's got to be some adrenaline pumping. And you've got to wonder exactly what you're going to encounter when you go and knock on that driver's side window. What's going through an officer's mind and what is the officer looking for? That's very true, Dean. Uh, they they call it officer safety and it's paramount and that is everything, especially at the onset of the stop. The officers are trained to uh, make officer safety paramount. So the moment they turn on the lights, they are scrutinizing everything the driver is doing. They are looking to see whether the driver is alert. Do, you know, the lights come on. Does the driver immediately react or do they continue to drive? How are they pulling over? They're, they're scrutinizing every movement. Once you come to a stop, they are going to approach in a, if it's nighttime, they're likely going to light up your vehicle with bright lights, spotlights. They're going to approach. They'll probably uh, oftentimes uh, uh, kind of, if, they're, if, if there's one officer in the car, he, he or she will get out of the driver's door, but they will likely then go over to the passenger side. Um, they'll walk up and try to get into the blind spot of your car so that so that it's harder for you to see. And they are looking at your hands. They are illuminating the inside of the vehicle to look for contraband, to look for weapons, and they are watching your hands. What you as a driver should be doing is being is is being very cautious and doing everything to alleviate their concerns. So light comes on, you should be alert, you should pull over quickly, safely, and then you should keep your hands visible on the steering wheel so the officer can see where your hands are. Don't make fast movements, don't be jerky. Keep your, keep your, um, keep your hands visible and then just kind of look forward until you hear the tap on your window or you know the officer makes contact with you. Um, oftentimes they're gonna they're gonna make contact behind you and, and they're gonna want you to look back at them. That's another they're positioning themselves for maximum safety, you know, in the event that you are a, you know, a potential bad guy with with a weapon that you're gonna try to use. So um, but you, you just you wanna be cooperative, polite, but you also want to hold your ground, especially when they start talking about why they stopped you. You you don't want to inadvertently make admissions. Um, You know, you want to alleviate their safety concerns, but also you want to um, protect yourself by not, by not 
over talking it. So that that was going to be my next question. Now, and I'm now asking both of you to put on your defense attorney hats. Can you ever talk yourself out of a ticket or attitude your way out of a ticket? And if so, how do you do that? Absolutely, you can. I've done it myself. So All right. Let's, how, what tips? Tips for getting out of a ticket? Well, I mean, number one, polite, 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 polite. Uh, just treat them like a human being. You know, not every officer is a bad cop. Um, you know, they're out there doing their job, and you know. E- you don't want to fess up, but you want to be apologetic. Um, you know, so I think just being polite, kind of talking to them human to human, not incriminating yourself, but being apologetic to a certain degree, that's going to give you the best chance. Their authority figures, they want their authority to be respected. If they view you as a non-threat and as a decent human being, you're, you're going to up your chances of getting off. Yes, I couldn't agree with Mike more. I think he's very accurate with what he just said they're it's they are human and you know it's a lot easier to give a ticket to somebody that's not nice if you come across as a jerk if you're argumentative if you are you know combative so to speak verbally it's so much easier for them to say oh yeah i'm writing this guy a ticket versus as mike said being polite apologetic but don't make any admissions that will maximize your chance of not getting a ticket. If it's a daytime stop and they're doing enforcement actions, like one of the callers was talking about where there's a problem with an intersection or they've had issues with vehicles, not yielding to pedestrians in a crosswalk, they're doing enforcement actions. You're going to get the ticket. They're, they're, they're just writing tickets. You're going to get the ticket. But a lot of times they, they are doing as you said, the attitude test, they're stopping you. It might be a pretext. They're seeing, checking on your sobriety and they're checking your attitude. And as Mike said, if you, you know, you, you handle it like that, uh, you're likely to walk away or drive away without a ticket. All right. Common sense on line one. We've got Ken from San Francisco who has a question about DUIs. Ken, are you with us? Yeah, I am. Okay. Hi. You're on KALW. What's your question? Oh, well, great. Well, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I, um, uh, about, uh, let's see, 18 years ago, way a long time ago, I received a number of, uh, of DUIs and, uh, was sent to jail for a year. No one got hurt. Thank heavens. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, anyhow, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I haven't, my license has been suspended and or uh, revoked since then. Um, but I've been in recovery for quite some years now. And I'm, I'm wondering uh, what I can do to, uh, I'm not thinking about uh, going back to driving uh, full time, but I want to be able to like maybe rent a car or something. So what can I do to, to get my driver's license back? Um, I, I know I, I need to, uh, um, I was, it was signed up to go for 18 months of, uh, of DUI, uh, driver, uh, training. And I'm not sure if I still have to do, I mean, it was 18 years ago and I'm wondering, I guess that stuff doesn't evaporate off your record, of course, but. I'm wondering, uh, 
um, should I get uh, a lawyer involved? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I really don't know where to turn next. Well, we've got think... two great lawyers here who do that sort of case. Let's see what they have to say, Ken. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So, so Ken, um, was it two DUIs or three, or how many are we talking about? Four. Okay, was it was the fourth one a felony? No, all misdemeanors. Okay, okay. So what you've got to do is finish your 18-month alcohol program. Um, you're probably going to have to obtain SR-22 insurance, and then you're going to go to the DMV right. after those are done and pay a fee. You do not need an attorney if that's your only concern. You know, okay. how, how long ago was this? How long ago was your last case? What, what year was it, roughly? Oh, I'm sorry. What year did what happen? Oh, oh my your last, last uh, conviction. Your last conviction, just roughly. Was oh, it uh, over 10 oh, years two, ago? Two, um, 2004. You know, you. if I were you, I, I agree with you. You don't need a lawyer right now. But I think the best thing for you to do right now is to go to the DMV. You can get your you, you, online. You can it's called an H one, but you can get your driving history online, and you mm-hmm. can go to the DMV and and just literally walk up there and say, "I want to get my license," and they will look. They'll take a look, and and they'll likely be reasonably helpful, and they'll say, "Okay, yes, actually, now we can. You know, you can receive a license because your convictions were so old that they're no longer affecting your your um, you know, your privilege." Or they may say you need uh-huh. to enroll and complete this class like that. But I would start with the DMV because th- that was a long time ago. And congratulations on your recovery. Uh, you may be able to get your license easier than you think. I, I would start there, DMV. Well, yeah, I agree uh, with well, that. Thanks for, the, for, for, for that uh, note of encouragement. And I'll give a DMV a, a try first. Hey, good luck to you, Ken. Uh, okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for guys. calling. So, Mike, you know, you were talking about getting tickets and talking your way out of tickets and officers who have who do enforcement stops. <clears throat> we always hear from people that, oh, that cop just stopped me because he was trying to make his quota for the month. Do cops have quotas? <laughs> Officially? No. Mm-hmm. Unofficially? What about unofficially? Of course, of course. I mean, you know, uh, being a cop is a job just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. If you're doing sales, you're expected to make sales. If you're a traffic cop, you're expected to write tickets. You don't write enough tickets, they're going to say, what have you been doing all day? You know, eating eating donuts and drinking coffee? You know, that's the reality of it. There's no official quota, but there can certainly be internal nasty, you know, nasty comments by your, your commanding officer or things like that. That's the reality of it. David, you've been there and done that. Yeah, there, there, there. Of course, quotas are illegal. the The way that the way that officers are, are judged, so to speak, is, is through their evaluations. So the, they they'll receive an annual evaluation, and a lot of times the, the, they'll receive them even quarterly. And the evaluations will will say that the officer's self-initiated activity is not enough. You, you know, you're, you're, you're not doing enough of this. You're not doing enough of that. So there's not a quota, but you, you, you'll get the feedback. As Mike says, you will get the feedback. And that's how they can encourage officers to, to 
write more tickets. And, and of course, if you are assigned to a, to a traffic bureau, you are expected to write more tickets. But honestly, right now in San Francisco, everything's upside down. And, and um, there, there's a, there are a lot of officers still assigned to the traffic bureau and they're not writing tickets and they're not being, uh, they're not, they're, they're basically almost being told not to do it. So it, it, things are a little weird right now, but yeah, quotas are, are, are there, there's quotas are illegal, but otherwise you officers will be evaluated. Actually, when I was a city officer, they would post every month how many tickets each officer wrote. So th- that wasn't a quota and you weren't being judged on it, but you could see how you ranked up with other officers. So they were, you know, subtle psychological, I guess, uh, encouragement. to little, little peer pressure, a little peer pressure going on there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I remember when I was a prosecutor, there was one um, officer in the north part of the county who advertised himself as the DUI king. And he would publish <laughs> his stats on how many DUI arrests he had had over the year. And I think they had a party and gave him a dinner and a trophy and, you know, whatever. So, yeah, un- as you said, officially, no. Unofficially, maybe the story is different. So I would like, you know, amazingly, we are starting to run out of time. And there's one subject that I do want to get into tonight. Um <clears throat> And that's DUIs. Um, We've talked about the typical kind of traffic stop where you get a ticket and the officer says, go and send no more. And you show up in traffic court, pay your fine or get a lawyer, defend it, whatever. DUIs are different, right? I mean, that once the officer smells some alcohol or suspects you've been drinking, things change. That's right. You're you're talking about, you know, uh, misdemeanor level offense. So we're not talking infraction and traffic court anymore. We're a big boy criminal court here. So, yes, it's a lot different. Yeah, we're talking jail fines, probation programs, et cetera, a hike in your insurance rates and so on. So the typical DUI arrest, how how does that come down? Does the officer smell alcohol? Does he ask us, sir, have you been drinking anything tonight? And if he gets a positive response either way, do officers ever let somebody go when they think there's alcohol involved? They actually can. I know they can, but do they? In in the old days, more often. Modernly, less often. But I would say that a highway... For example, Highway Patrol are very skilled in doing DUI investigations. That's their bread and butter. That's one of the main things they do. They're very skilled, and I'd say overall, they're also very professional. And if if an officer pulls over a motorist and the the motorist was not um, exhibiting, their, their, their driving in and of itself was not erratic. So the officer just pulled them over for um, exceeding the speed limit a little bit or or perhaps a mechanical violation, a registration violation, not observing erratic driving, walks up to the motorist and smells alcohol. Uh, you know, the, the motorist says, yes, you know, I did have a couple of drinks and, and it was for real. The motorist really did just have a couple of drinks. So what could happen next is that the officer could ask you to take a preliminary alcohol screen test, which is basically a portable breathalyzer. It is not the official test. It is considered a field sobriety test. Officer could ask you to blow in the machine. You have a right to decline. You don't have to do it. But 
If you really only had a couple of drinks for real, you could blow in that and that will show that your blood alcohol level is perhaps 0.405. So the officer sees you're below OA, you were not driving erratically, they may let you go. As a matter of fact, they probably will, especially in a professional officer like a you know highway patrol that's very skilled and confident in what they do. You, you don't always go to jail, but if you're driving erratically and you're closer to the 08 limit, you know, 07, um, 08, 09, yes, you're, you're likely going to jail. Yeah, a lot of discretion there, right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, there's a question I've always wanted to ask, and you guys do this on a day-to-day basis. You've seen it from both sides. Do police officers basically recognize that a lot of what happens in a DUI arrest is voodoo science? (laughs) I don't think so. I think they're taught in their classes, their post-certified classes, that this junk is real. Uh-huh. Uh, first, first of all, every single field sobriety test is not peer reviewed. Okay. And it's devised by the national highway traffic and safety administration. So they have a vested interest and it's promulgated by law enforcement who has a vested interest. These field sobriety tests are absolutely junk voodoo science. And I would advise everybody to never take a field sobriety test if you're requested to do so. Yeah, I, I always when I was uh, a DA and I was filing DUIs, uh, I always loved the remark that that motorists would make when they were told, you know, stand on one foot and close your eyes and count to a hundred and tell me when thirty seconds have passed. Mm. And the great response was always they would look at the the officer and go, "Are you kidding? I couldn't do that if I was sober." <laughs> and nobody can. Yeah, yeah, you pretty much can't. The only no. people, the only people who can do those uh, field sobriety tests are the officers themselves, because they practice, because they know they're going to be asked about it in court. Well, officer, could you do that? And they just stand <laughs> up and balance on one foot somehow. So I'm right that that's just voodoo science. Yeah, Abs- absolutely. Yeah. And it's really disturbing that it's used in the system to convict people that may otherwise be innocent every day in this country. Yeah, one of my favorite things to point out to to the experts that the DAs always call is that there was a study at Clemson University where they brought in a bunch of veteran officers who said they could guess somebody's blood alcohol by putting them through the FSTs. And they, they did that. The officers did that. And they guessed anywhere from 0.15 to 0.30 as a blood alcohol level. None of the test subjects had a drop of alcohol. <laughs> that sounds about right. Great study. Um, you mentioned the pass test. Now, that's basically a breath test. Is that reliable? It actually is um, pretty reliable. I, 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 I read a lot of DUI reports, and I'd say more often than not that the PAS result is um, within probably 0.01 to 0.02 of the actual um, blood alcohol level that's reported from a blood test or from the intoxilizer. They're, they're, it's not always accurate, but my experience is that they are generally accurate. Yeah, and that kind of assumes that the, that the intoxilizer is accurate, which is I mean, really a question. I mean, it, it measures breath alcohol, not blood alcohol, and that it's the blood alcohol that's critical. Um, and, you know, the, the hist- quick history on that, they convert breath to blood by using a thing called the partition ratio. 
the partition ratio is not some, you know different people have different partition ratios but the law says everybody has the same partition ratio so you know even if you prove hey you know what i was i wasn't really a 0.08 i was a you know 0.07 or whatever no 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 your partition ratio is the same as everybody you don't get special treatment so what if someone say hypothetically is arrested for a dui what should they do blood test breath test refuse definitely not refuse why not uh, refuse you... <laughs> what, hap- well, what happens when you refuse i know the answer double... but I, my yeah. listeners don't this is a double-edged sword because mm-hmm. to be honest i've had clients who have refused and da's have not filed their cases but they but the caveat to that is that you're looking at a one-year suspension from the dmv with no restricted license right um, so it's a double-edged sword. I have seen multiple people get off by not blowing, and I've I've seen a lot of people get their licenses hammered because they didn't blow. Yeah, I'd say um, the, the it, it it depends the the situation it depends, but the the good thing about choosing the blood test is that you as the defendant can have the sample retested. So it, it does give you that option. With the breath test, you don't have the ability to retest. But also, I have observed over the years that typically when clients choose to do both, so if a child, if a, if a, if a, if somebody is arrested, chooses the breath test, the intoxilizer, they are, they should also be given the option to give a blood test um, because you can't retest the breath machine. So officers are supposed to let uh, defendants know, or, uh, you know, the arrestee know that they also have the option of taking a blood test. And sometimes people do that. And I would say more often than not, the blood, if, if, if somebody chooses to do both, when we get the blood results, it is slightly higher than what the intoxilizer was. So if, if, you're, if, if you really have not had a lot to drink, you may want to go with the, with the intoxilizer. It may come out a little bit lower. But on the other hand, if you want to be sure and have the ability to retest, then, then blood's, blood's your only choice. Right. And to, to, to follow up on that, um, I would always go with blood because there's just so many factors ca- that can affect a breath test. The biggest one being that if you're in the absorptive stage, your breath test is going to read at least 0.02% or or higher because the blood isn't properly – the alcohol is not properly distributed in your body yet. There can be radio interference, et cetera. I would go with a blood test. Sounds like that if you'd go with the breath test, there's a lot more um, arrows in the defense attorney's quiver. There's a lot of things you can – you can raise, whereas the blood test, kind of the gold standard, right? Because you're measuring blood alcohol, and here's the blood, and we just figure out how much alcohol is in it. That, that's right. right. If the blood yeah. is collected properly, uh, that's really important, and tested properly, which many times it is not, it's not going to be reliable. But if it's collected properly and tested properly, it's going to be a lot more reliable than any breath test. Okay. And so we get a DUI, first-time DUI. What happens to us? consequences well if you are convicted of a first offense dui 
you will likely be placed on three years of informal probation, which means that you do not have a probation officer, but you have to stay out of trouble. If you get arrested again, if you get another conviction, they can violate your probation in the original case and potentially resentence you up to the maximum penalty, which is six months in jail. Also, when you're on probation, you're not allowed to even have one DUI probation. You're not allowed to have even one drink and drive. So that's a you end up being in a different category. You can't even drive with .01. Um, that would be a violation of your probation. Also, a lot of counties will impose uh, jail, however, virtually nobody actually goes to jail. They'll be on what they call sheriff's work programs. So a lot of counties you'll end up doing maybe a couple of days of what we call community service work. I'd say maybe 50% of the counties will make you do community service work on a first offense. And then the other half will not, they'll just give you, um, they'll, they'll, they'll cut your break and say, credit time served. You have to pay a hefty fine, typically just under about $2,000 and you'll be ordered to do a drinking driver program, which can be anywhere from three months to nine months, depending upon your blood alcohol level. So that is the um, typical uh, consequences of a first offense DUI. Now, that's what happens when you go to court. But my experience is a lot of clients don't understand that court isn't the whole deal. There's a whole separate proceeding with our favorite administrative agency, the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? That's true. Yes, there's a separate case. They call it an admin per se, administrative per se. It's a um, separate case, and you are facing a four-month license suspension on a first offense DUI, but there's ways to uh, get your license back sooner. One way is if you install an ignition interlock device, which is uh, a device that you have to blow into and and it, it ensures that you don't have any alcohol in your system. If you install an ignition interlock device, you can get your license back right away. Um, you, you have to keep it in your car until you finish your drinking driver program. Otherwise, you can wait one month after your suspension starts and you can get a restricted license to drive uh, for, for work to and um, within the course and scope of your employment and also to the drinking driver program. And then the restriction will go away at, um, after five months, or you can just wait out the four month suspension. Then you can get your license back by just um, getting an SR 22, which is a high risk liability insurance policy that you'll have to maintain for three years if you are convicted of a DUI or if the DMV upholds the action against you. Hey, you know, Mike, uh, my experience is when you tell people about these ignition interlock devices, most of my clients will say, you know, I, I just as soon Uber. That sounds like a tremendous uh, inconvenience. I actually had one older client who said, yeah, I keep blowing into that device. I think I'm going to get a hernia. So not very popular, are they? You know, I've had kind of different uh, experiences. Um, some people are happy. They're just so worried about not being able to take care of their family, go to work, get groceries. That choice is okay. Um, so, you know, that's been my experience. I think people are just happy to stay on the road because, you know, nowadays, you know, they, there's this fiction that driving is – not a right, it's a privilege, but let's be real. Unless you live in San Francisco or somewhere with really good public transportation, it kind of, it's necessary these days. Sure. 
Yeah, I agree with Mike. The the it, previously that you didn't have an option to install an ignition interlock device in order to get your privilege back right away. So it, it actually is helpful for some people, like Mike said. I, I I agree. All right, we've got a little less than five minutes left. Um, you guys are a tremendous resource, and you do a great public service. Um, let me give you the remaining time, a couple of minutes each, to tell our listeners whatever piece of advice you think they should have as they go out on the roads. Mike, can you start for us? Sure. So I would say, you know, obey the law if you can. <laughs> if you're in a hurry, you know, you got to speed. It is what it is. Uh, if you're out drinking, try not to overdo it. You know, I, I personally don't support drinking and driving, but I absolutely support citizens and their constitutional rights. That's why I do what I do. Um, I don't like unjust authority, but at the same time, I am concerned about the public and the safety of everybody. So, and if you do get pulled over for a DUI and you have had some drinks, don't talk. Don't, you're not going to talk. You're probably not going to talk your way out of it. Everything you say can and will be used against you. It's being reported on the body camera. So I would just uh, stay quiet as possible generally when interacting with police. And David. Yes, I think the one thing that everybody needs to remember is that they, you are your first line of defense. You are your first line of defense. So, so you want to interact with, with that attitude. If you are getting stopped, remember to be uh, alert, to pull over safely. Don't make the officer scared of you make sure that you keep your hands visible and and you know you remain polite and cooperative also yes apologetic but don't make admissions and the the thing is is that honestly nowadays if you are out drinking you you shouldn't drive it's crazy because Uber, Lyft, rideshare is so prevalent. It is so available that rather than taking that risk, you should just leave your car wherever it is, grab an Uber or Lyft, even if your car gets towed and you end up having to pay two, $300 to get it out. That is way cheaper than the ten, fifteen thousand dollars that's going to come out of your pocket over time if you get hit with a DUI. So you're your first line of defense. Use rideshare and um, be nice, cooperative with the officers, but and and don't d- make sure that you are aware that they are concerned about their own safety and don't make admissions. And my my last comment is: everybody, do not do field sobriety tests, and that's it. And that's great advice from two top attorneys in the field. And obviously, if anything goes south, you can give Michael or David a call. And finally, my piece of advice, the one sure way to beat a DUI, if you drink, don't drive. If you drive, don't drink. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. Tonight, we've been discussing traffic courts in the Department of Motor Vehicles. Our guests have been Michael Silvera of Silvera Law and David Uthman of the Law Offices of David Uthman. Tonight's show was produced by Jeff Hayden. And at the controls, the inimitable Tariq Ansari. For Jeff Hayden and for everyone here at KALW, I'm Dean Johnson. 
Be safe, drive safe, and good night. Thank you, Dean. That was Your Legal Rights. Check it out on the podcast, KLW.org, every Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. You just heard it. It's great radio. You are listening right now to KALW. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Again, 415-989-1616 or sfbar.org for more information.